Amen. You can be seated. Good morning. Good morning to our viewers online as well. We're going to jump right into Nehemiah. We're covering chapter 8 today. Uh, Next week, we cover chapter 9. And then we start a new series uh, for the summer on June 4th on the Old Testament character Joseph. Anybody like Joseph? I love his story. So that's what the summer will be spent on. And the the title of the series uh, is Joseph, the Sovereignty of God over Suffering and Evil. So as I said in previous messages in this series, uh, Nehemiah is not just focused on rebuilding the walls surrounding Jerusalem. He is is focused on restoring the people spiritually. Um, The first three verses of our scripture I want to reread say this. In October, when the Israelites had settled in in their towns, all the people assembled with a unified purpose at the square just inside the water gate. They asked Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given for Israel to obey. So on October 8th, Ezra the priest brought the book of the law before the assembly, which included the men and women and all the children old enough to understand. He faced the square just inside the water gate from early morning until noon and read aloud to everyone who could understand. All the people listened closely to the book of the law. So let me set the stage for what is happening here. Uh, Essentially, there's a flash mob happening at the Watergate, right? Flash mob, you know, where like just a whole bunch of people just show up. Um, You may remember from my message three weeks ago uh, where I talked about the gates surrounding the city, um, that there was a parallel between the gates and, and the gospel. And if you remember, the water gate is the one that stands for the word of God and its effect on our lives. Verse one says that everyone was gathered at the water gate. Now at that time, the population of the city, according to Nehemiah 7 and Ezra 2, if you do the math and you add up all the numbers that are there, It was approximately 50,000 people, 50,000 people. And it says that all of them assembled. So it was quite a scene. What we see here is that Nehemiah has set the stage and prepared the way for Ezra to read and preach the word of God. And to read and preach the word of God for six hours straight. Not only that, for seven days in a row. Verse 18 says this. Ezra read from the book of the law of God on each of the seven days of the festival. So it would be accurate to call this revival. Revival. And at the center of this revival was the reading and the preaching of God's word. In the Tyndale Old Testament commentary uh, on Ezra and Nehemiah, the author Derek Kidner says this, this day was to prove a turning point. From now on, the Jews would be predominantly 
a people of the book. So throughout church history, the people of God have gone through cycles uh, where God's word was neglected and then their spiritual condition began to deteriorate because of it. And one of the catalysts uh, for the renewal that God brings by his grace, he brings renewal, and when he does, by his grace, one of the catalysts for that renewal is an emphasis on the word of God. Okay, so we see this uh, throughout scripture. We see it in the Old Testament, in 2 Chronicles 34, uh, when Josiah is reforming the nation. He's destroying the altars of Baal, right? He's tearing down the Asherah poles. He is, he's crushing idols into dust. And when Hilkiah, the priest, uh, finds a copy of God's word, Josiah calls the nation to repentance. And then revival happens because God's word is publicly read and obeyed. A similar thing happened during the Protestant Reformation, um, which at its heart is a revival of God's word. Right? The Roman Catholic Church uh, up until this point really had neglected God's word. Priests were the only ones really with access to it, and, and many of them didn't even have an understanding of what it said. Wycliffe and Tyndale uh, were working hard to translate the Bible into English. Martin Luther was translating the Bible into German. The French theologian and Protestant reformer John Calvin, uh, he began to preach expository sermons to the people of Geneva, explaining and applying the scriptures verse by verse by verse. One of the core themes of the Protestant Reformation was this, this phrase, this Latin phrase, sola scriptura, sola scriptura. It means scripture alone. And all through this, we see throughout church history that God's word brings renewal. The same thing was true of the great Puritan revivals in England and America during the 16th and 17th centuries. The theologian and author J.I. Packer, who wrote one of my favorite books, uh, Knowing God, if you've not read that, I encourage you to read that, he wrote this. For Puritanism was, above all else, a Bible movement. To the Puritan, the Bible was in truth, the most precious possession that this world affords. His deepest conviction was that reverence for God means reverence for Scripture, and serving God means obeying Scripture. To his mind, therefore, no greater insult could be, afford, could be offered to the Creator than to neglect his written word. And conversely, there could be no truer act of homage to him than to prize it and pour over it, and then to live it out and give out its teaching. Intense veneration for Scripture as the living word of the living God and a devoted concern to know and do all that it prescribes was Puritanism's hallmark. 
So back to Nehemiah. We see in scripture today, in chapter eight, is that the people were hungry for the word of God. People were hungry for the word of God. They were willing to stand for six hours straight and listen to the Torah being read, being preached. The Torah being the first five books of the Old Testament, right? We, we also call it the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That is how hungry they were for God's word. They knew the stories. They knew their parents and their grandparents had been exiled because they had been disobedient to God's word. They knew from the brokenness of those stories, they knew from the brokenness of the walls that they needed the word of God. Now, copies of the Torah were probably pretty rare. Um, Many of the Jews had probably never heard it read before. Even in the New Testament, Paul teaches uh, Timothy that it is important to focus on the public reading of Scripture. It says it in 1 Timothy 4.13. It says this, Until I get there, focus on reading the Scriptures to the church, encouraging the believers and teaching them. So the public reading of Scripture was important uh, because, for one, the printing press hadn't been invented Uh, It wasn't invented until the 15th century, right? And so until then, the Bible had to be copied by hand. So because of that, there was usually only one copy in each city. And it was often chained to the pulpit, right? No one may steal the Bible, the one Bible that the whole city has, right? And since people were often illiterate, Uh, the Bible had to be read publicly for the common people to know what it said. Now, God could have communicated uh, with us in a form other than writing, right? He could have just sent an angel to every people group in the world uh, with his message. That would have saved Bible translators a whole lot of time. But instead, he chose to put it in written form. Um, It seems impossible today to think of like that many people, close to 50,000 people, standing and listening to the word of God being preached for six hours straight and to do that for seven days in a row. But that's how hungry they were for the word of God. And even though it might seem like uh, there are more and more people in this world who want nothing to do with God. We are seeing more and more hunger for the truth of God's word. So let me comment on this. Postmodernism, this idea of relative truth, right? Uh, It was cool, it sounded cool when it came on the scene but it didn't work, right? As society becomes more broken overall, and individual people experience more and more brokenness, 
this postmodern idea of truth is whatever each person makes of it, right? It doesn't deliver. It doesn't deliver because it's a lie. There really is objective truth. And people are realizing that. And they know, they want to know what that truth is, right? The research has shown over and over, those churches who hold to a more uh, theologically conservative view, churches that believe in the authority of Scripture, churches that believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, they believe that Jesus Christ was fully God, fully man, they believe in the virgin birth, they believe in heaven and hell, they believe in the absolute power and the beauty of the gospel to save. Those are the churches that are growing in this country. People need truth, right? And these people in our scripture today, in Nehemiah, they knew they needed truth, right? And they were hungry for it. We can see how much they hungered for it. Like Ezra wasn't forcing anything on them. Verse one again says this. They asked Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses. And then verse 3 says this. He faced the square just inside the water gate from early morning until noon and read aloud to everyone who could understand. All the people listened closely to the book of the law. And then verse 5 says this. Ezra stood on the platform in full view of all the people. When they saw him open the book, they all rose to their feet. So as soon as he opened the book, they stood as a sign of respect. Which meant they probably were standing there for six or so hours while Ezra was reading and preaching. And by the way, that is why we do the same thing. When scripture is read, uh, before the sermon starts, we ask you to stand as a sign of respect for the word of God. Now we don't read scripture for six hours straight. Um, but if we did, you can't complain because there is a biblical precedent. So one of these days, we just start going at it. And we're just going to read the word of God for six hours, seven days in a row. And you better stand to your feet and praise the Lord. <laughs> All right. Verse 6 says this, then Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people chanted, amen, amen, as they lifted their hands. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So this wasn't like a passive audience. This was an engaged congregation. They craved the word of God and they were hungry to have it read and to have it preached to them. Let's look at verses seven and eight again. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akob, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maaseah, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Paliah, then instructed the people in the law while everyone remained in their places. They read from the book of the law of God and clearly explained the meaning of what was being read 
helping the people understand each passage. Now, I want to make several comments about this passage right here. And the first is this. The people obviously had a very high view of the authority of Scripture, right? Here at Life Church, uh, we hold the view that the Bible, God's holy word, um, should be our ultimate guide in everything we believe, everything that we do, everything that we think. This is often called the authority of Scripture, the authority of Scripture. What it means is that the Bible's authority trumps man's authority, uh, trumps church tradition, and even trumps our own opinions. Amen. So that means that we don't want to allow anything that opposes God's word to, to dictate our actions or to control our thinking. Okay. It means that we agree with Martin Luther in the Protestant Reformation when he said that Latin phrase, sola scriptura. Scripture alone is authoritative for the faith and the practice of the follower of Jesus Christ. We believe that the Bible is complete. We believe that the Bible is authoritative. We believe that the Bible is true. A good verse to memorize if you're and I'm a big advocate of memorization. Uh, not just children can memorize scriptures. Adults can memorize them too. 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's a good one to have in your crawl. Is that your crawl? I don't know what a crawl is. Have it in you. So many people wander through life uh, disconnected from true reality. We say that they don't hold a Christian worldview. But even that phrase like implies like a pluralistic mindset. That, that a Christian worldview is just like one choice you can make among many. But the Christian worldview is the only worldview. It is the truth, right? It is the only worldview that is real. Many people are disoriented. Uh, they're confused with like what their purpose in life is. They aimlessly just take wrong turns. They make bad choices that only like, take them further away from the creator who loves them. My point is this. The word of God anchors us into true reality. The second thing we see in this scripture uh, is this. Correct preaching is helping people understand the scriptures. Okay. Here's what Paul has to say to Timothy about preaching the word of God. 2 Timothy 4, 1 to 4. I solemnly urge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who will someday judge the living and the dead when he comes to set up his kingdom, preach the word of God. 
Be prepared, whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. So a preacher's main responsibility is to be certain that those who hear him understand the Bible, which means that preaching must be accurate. We make all kinds of like interesting points, um, but if we're not accurately reflecting what the passage is teaching, we are not teaching the Bible correctly. It also means that preaching needs to be understandable. Some texts are difficult to understand. Um, even Peter said that about some of Paul's writings. It's in 2 Peter 3. He said this. Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom God gave him, speaking of these things in all of his letters. Some of his comments are hard to understand. Sometimes Jesus seemed to be deliberately obscure, right? particularly in the parables, to hide the truth from the unbelievers. But usually the job of a biblical teacher is to communicate, to teach, the truths of Scripture clearly and simply. Martin Luther had some hard things to say uh, to preachers who just focused on the intellectuals in their congregations um, and who neglected helping simple, uneducated people understand the truth. He said that even though he had more than 40 doctors and magistrates in his church, when he preached, he spoke to the young people, he spoke to the children, he spoke to the servants. He said this, if the educated people weren't impressed, the door is open. Let them be gone. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> so, in addition to preaching needing to be accurate, needing to be understandable, um, it needs to be applicable to our lives. The question we should always ask is, how should my life change as a result of what I just learned? That should be the question we ask ourselves after every sermon, after every Bible study, every small group discussion. How should my life change as a result of what I just learned? Holy Spirit, what is one little baby step I can take this week to walk in obedience to you? And over time, as we do this, Right? We grow, we change, one little baby step at a time. And we bring our lives, we bring our thoughts, we bring our beliefs, we bring our actions into alignment with God's Word. John Calvin didn't view theology as an end unto itself. He said this, When I expound Holy Scripture, I must always make this my rule that those who hear me may receive profit from the teaching I put forward 
and be edified unto salvation. If I do not procure the edification of those who hear me, I am a sacrilege, profaning God's word. The word of God is not to teach us to prattle, not to make us eloquent and subtle, and I know not what. It is to reform our life so that it is known that we desire to serve God, to give ourselves entirely to him, and to conform ourselves to his goodwill. Another thing I want to point out here is this. Uh, preaching requires commitment, both on the part of the preacher and the part of the listener. Those who preach and teach God's word um, have to be committed to take the time to pray, to study, and to prepare. In other words, you can't preach and teach the Bible accurately if you don't do your homework. Amen. It is a discipline, and it is a discipline that takes time. When I took my first preaching class in 2003, that was 20 years ago, um, they told us this. They said, for every minute that you preach, you need to spend an hour in preparation. Okay? So if you're preaching a 30-minute sermon, that's 30 hours of preparation. Is that surprising? So practically for me, like you want to know how that plays out for me, I devote two days a week towards sermon prep. Um, usually those days are Wednesdays and Fridays. And since I'm a pretty early riser, uh, I'm usually up between 3 and 5 a.m. every day. Uh, I'm usually spending a couple hours each morning also doing sermon prep. So if you do the math, you add all that up, that's about close to 30 hours. It's interesting. Uh, even the apostles, who were taught directly by Jesus, right? They were empowered by the Holy Spirit. They had to say no to certain ministry demands so they could devote themselves to prayer and to the teaching of the Word of God. It's in Acts 6. It says this. But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve called a meeting of all the believers. They said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. And so, brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and are full of the spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. So the apostles had to prioritize their commitment to prayer and to teaching God's word. I'm not saying that pastors shouldn't serve, lead, visit and pray with people, help minister to people's needs or the needs of people in the community. But if they're a preacher, their primary focus should be prayer and the teaching of God's word. 
That means, that means that those who are gifted in the area of preaching and teaching God's word should do so, and those with other gifts should lead and serve in other areas, right? So it's a division of labor according to our spiritual gifts. And all the gifts are important, right? The Bible says all the gifts are equally important. If there's any one gift that's better than all the others, it's love, right? We need all of the gifts. And we see this principle in our scripture this morning, right? Until now, Nehemiah was in the forefront. Um, he was a gifted administrator. He could organize things, right? He could mobilize people to get the walls built. But when it came time to preach, when it came time to teach God's word, um, he takes a back seat to Ezra. Ezra, right? It says this in Ezra 7, verse 6. This Ezra was a scribe who was well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given to the people of Israel. So Ezra had studied the law. He had obeyed the law. He had plenty of experience in teaching the law. In Ezra 7.10, says this, Ezra, was, Ezra had determined to study and obey the law of the Lord and to teach those decrees and regulations to the people of Israel. So these two men, Ezra and Nehemiah, right, they beautifully demonstrated this principle of team ministry, right? Each of them playing to their strengths. Let's look at verse 9. It says this. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were interpreting for the people said to them, don't mourn or weep on such a day as this. For today is a sacred day before the Lord your God. For the people had all been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. So this is, this is incredible when you think about it. Like Ezra is reading the law. He's reading God's word and the people are in tears. They're in tears. So what's happening here? Let me help us understand this. Ezra is telling them about Adam and Eve, how they rebelled against God. And they're realizing that that's them too. And that's us too. We've rebelled against God. He's telling them about Noah, how God wiped out all the wicked people with the flood. And that's them, and that's us too. We are wicked, and we need to be saved from destruction. Then he reads the book of Exodus, and the people realize that's us too. We have been enslaved, and we need to be redeemed, and we need to be set free. And we do too. And then it gets to Leviticus, right? And all those laws. And they realize we're not keeping all those laws, right? We break them every day. And you know, if we keep all the laws but one, 
If we miss just one, we're just as guilty as if we broke them all. And they, both they realize and we realize we are doomed if someone doesn't help us. Like this, this is a gospel moment right here. As the word of God is read, the people begin to see how great and how holy God is. And they are in awe and they worship him. They raise their hands, they fall to the, on their faces and they worship him. And at the same time, they see the great depth of their own sinfulness. And they see their need for a savior. And they begin to mourn. And they begin to weep as they're convicted of their sin. They're seeing what they hadn't been able to see before. That there is this, this huge chasm between how great and holy God is and how corrupt and how in need they are. And this conviction leads them to repentance. Right? The gospel always demands repentance. We can't encounter like that huge chasm between broken, sinful us and an all-holy, all-loving God and just walk away saying, I'll try harder. I'll do better. Every time we read the word of God, we are faced with our great need to be rescued. Our need for a savior. And every time we see Jesus, strong and mighty to save, the very love of God made flesh for us, we realize that he is our only hope. He is our only hope. Verses 9 and 10 say this. Don't mourn or weep on such a day as this, for today is a sacred day before the Lord your God. This is a sacred day before our Lord. Don't be dejected and sad, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So Nehemiah is giving hope to the people. And our hope, our salvation, rests in the Lord. Like we can, we can rejoice, we can rest not in our own works, but in Jesus' finished work on the cross. Let me read the rest of the chapter. On October 9th, the family leaders of all the people, together with the priests and Levites, met with Ezra the scribe to go over the law in greater detail. As they studied the law, they discovered that the Lord had commanded through Moses that the Israelites should live in shelters during the festival to be held that month. He had said that a proclamation should be made throughout their towns and in Jerusalem, telling the people to go to the hills to get branches from olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees. They were to use these branches to make shelters in which they would live during the festival as prescribed in the law. So the people went out and they cut branches and they used them to build shelters on the roofs of their houses 
in their courtyards, in the courtyards of God's temple, or in the squares just inside the water gate and the Ephraim gate. So everyone who had returned from captivity lived in these shelters during the festival, and they were all filled with great joy. The Israelites had not celebrated like this since the days of Joshua, son of Nun. Ezra read from the book of the law of God on each of the seven days of the festival. Then on the eighth day, they held a solemn assembly as was required by law. So they continue to read the word of God and they realize that they're supposed to be celebrating the festival of booths, right? This was something the Lord had instituted uh, as a reminder, a reminder of the harvest, a reminder of God's provision and their rescue out of Egypt and their journey through the desert. Here's the point. They read the word of God, and then they did what it said. They obeyed the word of God, and the result in verse 17 was they were all filled with great joy. Again, the question we should ask ourselves, after every sermon, after every Bible study, after every small group discussion, is this, how should my life change as a result of what I just learned? And over time, as we grow, as we change, as we take little steps, right, we begin, we begin to bring our lives, our thoughts, our beliefs, and our actions into alignment with God's word, we change. We become more like Christ. Uh, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are called to be people of the word, people of the word, to have an ever-growing appetite for the word of God, to have a growing knowledge of who God is. The more that we are in the word, uh, the more we will be reminded of the truth that sets us free. Jesus, 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 right? And the more we will be free to live for him and the more we will have of him to share with other people, right? That's that whole salt and light thing, right? I wanna close, I wanna close with this story. During the Civil War, the commander of the Confederate Army, Robert E. Lee, um, sent word to General Stonewall Jackson that the next time he happened to be at the headquarters, which is about eight miles from where Stonewall Jackson was, he'd like to talk to him. And he said uh, it, it, it wasn't really a matter of great importance, but just whenever it happened, he'd like to talk to him. When Jackson received the message, he immediately prepared to leave the next morning. He got up early, and he rode the eight miles uh, to the headquarters. Even though there was like a terrible snowstorm, he arrived just as Lee was finishing his breakfast. 
Lee was surprised to see him so soon, like coming out of the snowstorm. And he asked Jackson, why, why, why didn't you wait? Um, he had told him it, it wasn't that important. And here's what Jackson said. But you said that you wished to see me. General Lee's slightest wish is a supreme command to me. Is God's slightest wish a supreme command to you? Are we that attuned to the word of God, to the master's voice, that we can hear what he's saying and obey him without hesitating? Let's pray. Lord, I, I think it's appropriate to close this message by praying scripture. Uh, so Lord, I wanna pray Psalm 19, verses seven through 14. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen.